Merkel Media. I guess it's time to go back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Time is but a stubborn illusion. I have a lot of memories of the past. People are time traveling within themselves. Time travel is possible. Okay, I reload it. They're staying in the shadows. It's called probing. Make sure things are all clear. Clear for what? For the rest of the night. You guys hear that? everybody i am your host tony merkel and i am really glad that you're here and i'm really glad to be here if you've had an encounter or a story you'd like to share with me on the show go ahead and shoot me an email my email address is the confessionals podcast at gmail.com that's the confessionals podcast at gmail.com or go to the website the confessionals podcast.com hit the connection section and you can reach me that way as well before we get into this week's interview, I want to bring on my younger brother, Jack, who came with me to the Chautauqua Lake Bigfoot Expo last weekend, and we had a lot of fun just driving up there, and we actually went on a hike into the woods in the Allegheny National Forest. Uh, on a previous episode, I told you guys that I was giving coordinates to a cave that had a fossilized footprint in it, and so me and Jack actually went up there in search of the lost cave and the fossilized footprint. Jack, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Tone. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, dude. I think we had a lot of fun just driving up there and doing our thing. Uh, but why don't you tell people a little bit about your experience with this hike that we went on in the Allegheny National Forest? Oh, uh, yeah. The hike was a blast. I mean, we <laughs> first of all, it was really good to get out and stretch our legs after the drive. Um, but we <laughs> getting there was fun, you know, trying to figure out where to park. But the hike was incredible. I mean, um, you know, steep hill. So, I mean, getting up was tough, but the scenery was gorgeous. Uh, and we just had, a, I mean, we had a really good time trying to find the area that we were supposed to get to, uh, not much detail in the coordinates. So we just kind of had to roll with, uh, with the picture on a map and that was a lot of fun. So, I mean, we had a good time, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody wants to see the excursion that we went on, head on over to YouTube, the Pennsylvania Sasquatch Research Channel, and you'll see the video there. It's titled The Lost Cave and the Footprint in Stone. And you'll see the whole time that we had, you know, going up there and just hiking up the mountain and then finding the cave and all the stuff that happened after that. It was just a lot of fun. So if you're interested in seeing our day in the woods, go over to the Pennsylvania Sasquatch Research YouTube channel and check out that video. So Jack, 
we left there and we had a lot of fun in the woods. I mean, it was what a three hour hike up and down. Yeah. It was great. But we left there, we head to the Chautauqua Lake Bigfoot Expo and we check in, we go over to movie night, we do our thing over there and we come back to our room. And this is what I want to talk about a little bit tonight because, you know, it's October, Halloween is two weeks away. And I started thinking about this today. I'm actually going to share this story with everybody this week, this ghost story that you and I experienced in the cottage. And next week, everybody, I'm going to share another haunting story that I have experienced in my past that I have not shared with anybody on air. And you guys will hear it next week right here on The Confessionals. It is a bone chiller. At least it was for me. So, uh, But that's a little preview for next week. But getting back to this week's little ghost story we have... Jack, we went into the cabin after the movie night, and we're getting ready, kind of just wrapping things up, trying to get into bed so we could get up early the next day because I had to speak and all that stuff. And I walk out into the living room, and I open the front door for whatever reason, and what do I find on the door? A nice, uh, fresh, steamy handprint right on the glass pane. Yeah. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, I opened the door. I'm like, oh, there's a handprint on the door. And it was fresh. I mean, what it was was the door that had the glass on it. It was all dewy. It had the, all the moisture on it. And anything, anything that would touch that door would have, you know, leave a print. And this was a fresh handprint at the level of my face. And I'm six feet tall. And the handprint was at my level. And I didn't think anything of it. When I saw this, I was like, oh, there's a handprint on the door. Didn't bother me at all. But you, on the other hand, got pretty freaked out. And I, I, I want you to I want to ask you, what was it about this handprint that freaked you out so much? Yeah, I mean, you're that's a good question. I honestly have no clue. So I'm not I'm not typically um, one to overreact about things like that. Especially when it comes to something, you know, I'm I'm trying to act tough because I'm in front of my big brother. So that's kind of freaking out in in my uh, bedroom. You know, I can't believe there's a thing. You know, freaking out is not something that that shows your toughness. So, um, yeah, I mean, the way that I would describe it was uh, it just felt weird, Um, you know, because I knew it wasn't mine. The where where it was placed on the on the door, you know, it wasn't a full print. So, I mean, when when we're describing it, it wasn't like a full print on the center of the glass so like you know when you open the door you put your hand on the middle of the door to open it it wasn't anything like that it was more of like a a side print so it was really weird it was like the hand came in from the side and like put half of the hand on the door so it was really you know it was eerie just the way it looked like something somebody had grasped the door and tried to pull it open um (laughs) mostly it was just you know the fact that like yeah oh there's a handprint on the door (laughs) You're coming away from the door. You're telling me this, and I'm, you know, like not. Well, you didn't believe me much. at first. You no, thought I was because, kidding. Oh man, because yeah, I mean, you always do that kind of stuff. So I wasn't really thinking, you know. Oh, he's, you know, he's being serious with me. And we're at a Bigfoot, uh, Bigfoot Expo, so I was like, oh, he's trying to mess with me. It's, you know, trying to make it something out of nothing. Um, but yeah, then I, I started to get real freaked out walking over to the door and. I couldn't, I couldn't even open the door. Like I couldn't even get the, the guts to open the door. Like, you're like, just open it. I'm just sitting there freaking out and <laughs> mentally, you know, I have no idea what was going on in my head, but mentally, like, I'm just, 
I just, I had to just peek out the glass to see, you know, pull back the curtain and look just to see the little handprint thinking something was going to stare at me. Um, and I think partially it was in my own head, but I mean, Hey, you never know. Something could have been, there could have been something that was freaking me out, but yeah. So I was just freaking out from that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when I saw it, I turn around and I just nonchalantly tell you, Oh, there's a handprint on the door. And you start like, you're like, no, there isn't no way. And I'm, yeah, what's the big deal, you know? And you had a hard time just walking over to the door and looking out the window, and you finally did, and you're like really? freaked out. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about this handprint, but it really sets up what happened the rest of the night. Now, after that, we started hearing this like tapping sound in the kitchen, and it wasn't like on a wall or uh, from a refrigerator or anything like that. It actually, we actually got the sound narrowed down to the upper left-hand corner of the kitchen. And it sounded like it was inside our cottage. Now, the cottage was attached to another cottage. And so you could say somebody was on the other side tapping. Why? I don't know. But (laughs) it was going on for a while. And it was very random and sporadic. And so I'm not freaked out about this. I I wasn't, it didn't bother me at all. I was just like, okay, that's weird. It's funny because I do this show, yet when I'm in a situation where there could be something paranormal going on, that's the last thing I think about. Like I just didn't, <laughs> I just didn't think that it could be paranormal. It's just you know some tapping on the wall and a handprint on the door. Nothing to see here. Keep it moving. You know, like I just didn't think that anything paranormal was happening. And you were, and I, I'm just, I find it so interesting because maybe you're a little more sensitive to me than me. I don't know, but you seem to think that there was something going on early on and i'm thinking to myself what is this kid like what what is wrong with him like <laughs> you know like you you were freaking out like you could sense something i wasn't sensing anything and uh i just found that interesting that we were totally different on the opposite yeah. opposite end of the perspective there yeah. and uh so we get ready for bed and we wound up sleeping in the same room uh I was on one bed, you were on the other, and there was, uh, to set this up for the people listening, when you walk into this room, the door is on the left side of the room, and you walk in, and on your right-hand side is the beds. There's one bed on one wall, one bed on the other wall, and in between the beds, there's the nightstand with a lamp on it. Now, you took one bed, I took the other, and on your side, you put your glasses and your cell phone with the charger. And on my side, I had my laptop, my phone, and my glasses sitting there. And we go to bed, you know, like that, nothing unusual, you know, other than the handprint on the door and the tapping, (laughs) nothing unusual. We go to sleep and we pretty much knocked out pretty quickly. We were pretty exhausted from that hike. And I remember it was probably around two, three o'clock in the morning. And I hear your glasses it sounded like they fell off the table. And so I wake up and I get my phone and I shine the flashlight and there's your glasses laying in the middle of the floor, probably about six feet away from your table, from our table, the table in the middle of the beds. And I pick them up and I hand them to you because at this point you wake up too. And it was actually really hot in the cabin. And <laughs> yeah, so like... we decided to, you know, turn down the heat and, you know, mm-hmm. go back to bed. And... So we go back to bed and I I don't know, how long do you think it was in between the two instances? Probably not very long. I don't think it was very long at all, but 
we go back to bed. You put your glasses back on the table. And let's just say a half an hour later, my glasses go flying off the table and land on the floor, right at the same spot, about six feet off the, away from the table. And now I'm thinking, okay, there's something going on here. Because when I woke up the first time and your glasses are laying on the floor, I thought you did it. And you thought I did it, but we didn't talk about it because we both thought each other did it. And then when my glasses flew off the table and landed on the floor, six feet away from the table, I knew I didn't do that. And you knew you didn't do that. And there's some just general things that make it impossible for one of us to be doing it. Because if you were doing it, you would have had, in order to knock my glasses off the table, you would have had to knock the lamp off the table as well. And vice versa, if I was doing it, when I knocked your glass, if I, if I would have knocked your glasses off, I would have had to take off the lamp off the table too when I'm swinging my arm. And I find it funny that both our glasses at two different times flew off the table, but nothing else did. Not my cell phone, not your cell phone, not my, not my laptop, nothing, just the glasses. So what do you think about that? Do you think there was something going on there that night or what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I don't know if I want to say there was because I think I'll creep myself out even more. But yeah, when, you know, something to just, you know, note too is that when we had our phones on the table, um, you know, your laptop was underneath your phone and your glasses. But on my side, it was just my phone and the glasses. But my phone uh, was plugged into the charger and, you know, the charging cord was over my glasses. So, you know, if I were, so it was basically tangled up. If I were to knock my glasses off, my phone would have fallen on the floor too, um, and vice versa for you. So it was, you know, my my thoughts on it were uh, at the time I wasn't thinking coherently because of how tired I was. But you know, after waking up and you explaining to me what happened, I was not necessarily thrilled to hear that, especially <laughs> after everything that happened. So, I mean, needless to say, I actually packed up all of my stuff that morning. And I didn't even tell you this, but it was mostly because of that. Like, you know, I wanted to get that crap out of there. I didn't want anything it's still in the cabin. So I packed up all of my stuff as soon as I woke up and put it in the, in the car. Yeah, I remember you did that, too, because you, you said to me, hey, are you going to pack up your stuff? I'm like, no, I'll just let my stuff here until after I'm done speaking. I'll come back and pack up later. And you're like, okay. Like you were kind of, <laughs> you're like, if that's what you want to do, you know, but I, uh... <laughs> it's just, it's so funny because in all reality, there should have been more going off the table if one of us was just flying our arms around in the middle of our sleep. Just for the fact that you had your glasses underneath the charger cord and I'm pretty sure my glasses were behind my phone in the direction that the glasses flew. There's just so many different things that should have happened. You know, we both weren't flying our arms around, knocking our glasses off. Like, I don't do that. I have a table next to my bed every night. I don't do that. So what makes me do that that night, you know? And then how would I knock your glasses off without taking off the lamp, you know? So yep. when you add some things up, you start thinking, okay, maybe there's something going on there because... We first see the handprint on the door that we both know you didn't do and I didn't do. And there's no explanation for it. You know, maybe uh, somebody was messing with us or somebody opened our door thinking that they were going to their cabin. I don't know. But on top of that, you have the tapping noise in the kitchen that's unexplainable. It was in the kitchen. I'm, I'm, 
I'm out in the kitchen, standing in the corner, looking at the corner of the kitchen. Like I can hear it. It's right here, but I can't yep. see it. What is going on? You know, like, but I wasn't freaked <laughs> out. I was just like, that's weird. Old cabin, I guess, whatever. Yep. And then we go to sleep and we have, I guess you could call poltergeist activity where things are flying off the table. I don't know if whatever it was didn't like glasses. I don't know, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it was definitely yeah. interesting. Well, like you mentioned, I mean, they both flew to the same spot. And the thing I always think about, you know, every time you see a movie where <laughs> something's going to the same spot all the time, like there's something that's typically there that they're trying to either point to or, uh, you know, that has some sort of significance. It plays a role in what what the glasses are there for. And, you know, if we like just talking and thinking it through by talking, it kind of like makes you think, was there something there? Was there activity? Or were they like pulling the glasses off and standing there and pretending to be looking at us with the glasses? I don't know. I mean, I'm just, you know, putting it together in my head and I'm freaking out also at the same time because, oh my gosh, that's creepy. <laughs> Maybe we had a cloaking Bigfoot that followed us into the cabin that yeah. night. You know, <laughs> who knows, right? But yeah. no, I just found it very interesting. And my entire life, you experience small things here and there. But I really do believe that that was one of the few times that I could almost instantly walk away from that situation saying, that was paranormal. Like, usually I have some doubt in my mind. I'm always trying to explain something away. I always find some kind of other excuse or reason for why something happened but what happened last saturday night was i just can't explain it i just can't explain it and so i chalk it up as some kind of paranormal experience that i i'm really glad that somebody else was there to experience it with me so i wasn't crazy you know yeah yeah i mean definitely was interesting i mean especially that heater too i mean we didn't turn that thing up hot at all. That's one thing I didn't get. You so. know, I didn't think about that till just now. Yeah. I, I didn't I touch mean, the heater. Had, I don't know. I don't know what you said it at. Yeah. Like I should. I, well, I think you asked me in the morning how hot it was because we were sweating when we woke up. It was bad. Then now um, let's, let's draw that picture out because now that you're bringing that up, I didn't think about that. After we heard your glasses fall on the ground for the first time, we both woke up and we both acknowledged it was extremely hot in the cabin. Like, yeah. It almost yeah. felt like the cabin was on fire. I was having a hard time breathing. That's how stuffy and yep. hot it was. We had to open yep. the windows and we had to turn off the heater. How hot was it when you went to bed? How high did you have it turned up? Yeah, so the way the heater knob was set up, it was like um, off and then it had a gap and it was like low and then it had those you know little arrows you know getting bigger and bigger. So I had it pretty much just above low and i made sure to turn the ceiling fan on because you know we need to circulate the air um and that heater was in the it was like you walk into the cabin there was a living room and then the heater was right in the middle there um and it was supposed to kind of heat the whole cabin up and then two rooms so we were in that one room right next to it and yeah the heater wasn't on very high i only had it on uh maybe a notch above low and you know, I didn't notice, I don't know, I think you you may have turned it down when you got up out of bed. Um, but, you know, when I checked in the morning, it was at the same spot. So the, based on how hot it was, that it, how much heat it was putting out when we went to bed at low, it shouldn't have been that hot. And that's kind of the thing that I was like, 
you know, thinking about more in the morning and I didn't want to say anything because I don't want to freak myself out anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know what was going on in that cabin or cottage, however you want to call it, yeah. but there's definitely something going on there. And I think I'm going to ask Peter about it next time I talk to him because I want to know <laughs> if he's ever heard of anybody else experiencing stuff in there because it definitely, I just can't imagine that was the first time something happening because I don't know, things like that don't happen to me, you know? So I just can't imagine that's the first time that that's happened in that cabin. But uh, definitely interesting experience, and I'm glad you were there to experience it with me. Uh, Next week, we're going to be having another story told by me, and this is probably the most paranormal encounter I've ever had in my entire life. And it involves what I believe to be a warlock, an experience that I had with a warlock, a three-hour experience I had with a warlock one Saturday morning. And that's all I'm going to give you right now. Tune in for next week because I will definitely be sharing that story as Halloween quickly approaches. And hopefully that story will give you some chills and get you in the mood for Halloween. Jack, I appreciate you coming on and just talking with me about the Chautauqua Lake Bigfoot Expo experience in the cabin. I thought that was interesting, and I'm glad you joined me. (laughs) Oh, yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me on, Tony. You got it, man. So this week's show, we have Andy coming on, and Andy is in England, and he actually runs a blog, and he's done a lot of different documentaries, and he just came out with a book called The Beast of Britain. And he comes on to talk about sea monsters this week that he has researched over in the United Kingdom. So without any further delay, let's bring on Andy and hear what he has to say. Okay, I have Andy on tonight, and Andy is actually in uh, the UK, and he wants to talk to us tonight about some of the things that he has uncovered about different cryptids in England and the area. Andy, how are you? Very good, very good. Very happy to be here, Tony. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I'm just glad you you reached out and contacted with me, because I really was uh, excited to hear from you, especially when you start talking about how uh, you know a lot about water monsters, sea monsters, because... For me, my entire life, Nessie has been a fascination. I just, I, I, ever since I was a kid, I always enjoyed hearing about Nessie. And uh, so whenever somebody says to me that they know a little bit about that, you know, my ears perk up. So I really appreciate you communicating with me. And uh, Andy, b- before we get into tonight's show, talking about these different cryptids, I want to let the audience know, uh, you did write a book called Beast of Britain, and you also work on different documentaries, right? That's right. Yeah. So I've written a book called Beasts of Britain. The idea for this came about watching some of these famous shows on television, like Finding Bigfoot and Monster Quest and and things like that. And I'm wondering to myself, well, you know, I've always been aware of, of lots of different cryptids here in this country. And yet we're always looking abroad into the US or uh, you know, to the Himalayas and, and other places like this, you know, far away and uh, more plausible, it seems to us, that something unusual might exist there. And what might we have in our own country? So I, I decided to, to look into it and starting with things like water monsters, lake monsters, river and sea monsters, something that I found a lot of information on in the UK. It seems to be something we have a, a long history with. And also, right into modern times, you have many, many modern sightings. Uh, now, Loch Ness you know, would be one of the major cases of this, but there are other sightings around the country as well, in different lakes and um, coastal areas. Um, so I started 
writing a book and, and discovered other cryptids along the way, like the British Bigfoot and uh, raptors, mystery uh, raptors and big cats and dogman and, and things like that too, which were very exciting to me. Now, the uh, documentaries I've become involved with accidentally, really, uh, being interested in this area. Um, one of the major ones that's happening right now, featuring uh, some of the biggest names in cryptozoology, is called Cryptozoologist, which is a, a very different documentary that's it's looking at the people themselves that dedicate their lives to this kind of study, this fruitless, penniless study that all of us have become obsessed with. And it features people like Lauren Coleman, uh, Lyle Blackburn, Adam Davis, Linda Godfrey. And there's a UK segment that's actually traveling around the world. I'll, I'll be part of the UK segment and people like Richard Freeman, who's investigated the, um, the Mongolian death worm and various Russian-like monsters John Downs of the um, the crypto as uh, of the the Center for Fortune Zoology, uh, which is the biggest uh, cryptozoology um, uh, group in the world. They publish a, a lot of books as well, uh, and many many others like Deborah Hatswell of the British Bigfoot Research Group. So I, I got involved in this documentary just as a contact to begin with, and we, we started working together much closer. And I became a producer of sorts for this segment here in the UK, and uh, this. Guys are doing a great job. It is a Kickstarter uh, documentary, so there is um, there is a site. You can go into cryptozoologist.org and find information there. And along the way, I've also encountered others, uh, like Christopher Turner's uh, British Bigfoot documentary, Elusive. And I've, I've got my, my own one, which is um, it's being filmed at the moment. We're, we're getting the pitch together, so to speak, called Beasts of Britain, under the same name. That's fantastic, man. I really... I'm really fascinated by the fact that you're so uh, involved in these documentaries and you know writing books and stuff. It's just people say suggest to me that I should you know try doing something. That I'm just like I don't know where to even begin with that stuff, you know. <laughs> so it's yeah, really cool. Um, well, I, for me, I, I think it was accidental. Really, I didn't think that anybody would even be interested in the book, and I, I took a 25 year obsessive uh, private research and suddenly decided, you know, at, at age. Uh, 40, that, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll just write a book about it. Nobody will probably want to, to hear about it. And I started releasing parts, chapters of the book, the blog, and posting them on a few pages, and got a good response. So I thought, well, let's let's keep going. You know, why don't we contact a few publishers and see if they'd like this, or contact a few directors and see if they want to produce a documentary with you. Something different. Um, and I know we have the Finding Bigfoot show, which I was a fan of. I know they never found anything, but you know, it was it was an enjoyable show and uh, other things like that, a Survivor Man. And uh, I wanted something different. So for me, uh, my personal documentary will be something more akin to um, maybe River Monsters, you know that show? Absolutely. Uh, with Jeremy Wade uh, meets Coast, which is a very popular show here. Uh, the people who travel around the coastline of Britain investigating just the history of it. It's just full of beautiful scenery, and little stories. And then there's a third uh, show here. It's actually a fictional show called The Detectorists. And I don't know if you know what uh, metal detectors are. Sure. Yeah, so a lot of people here have this habit. You know, it's a bit of a square sort of geeky habit. They go along the coast in the muddy estuaries and they, um, or even in fields, and they put these metal detectors out and they, they look for things. Well, two very big actors, one who was in the Pirates of the Caribbean and the, the Office series. Um, I forget his name now, unfortunately. They, they created this show, The Detectorists, about these two 
lovely guys, you know, slightly geeky, that go around the country looking for things hidden. And uh, myself and the director I'm working with, wouldn't that be a nice angle? You know, again, it's more of an observational um, point to come from to, to look at cryptozoology instead of here we are in the dark, you know, making funny calls and and uh, hoping to get something on night vision. <laughs> Why don't we actually follow the guy who's interview, interviewing people and looking at this and his life, and uh, as well as the you know, expeditions and the, the research, and, and see what we come up with, with more of a personal view. That's really cool. That's a different angle for sure. You're kind of almost behind the scenes of uh, some of these researchers' lives and how they go about interviewing these people and all that stuff. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and that's see if we really are as sad as everybody pleases us to be. <laughs> Let's see what kind of <laughs> what kind of um, impoverished <laughs> yeah. lifestyle we have. I mean, obviously, people like me and others, we we work. Most cryptos want to just work yeah. as a job for a living. You know, this um, it's a hobby interest for most people. Not everybody, but I, I believe those you know who, who are full time writers and are successful at it work very hard to make their money. And um, although I wouldn't mind seeing some success from it, I, I don't have any illusions to making money from it. And I think that helps me keep the research genuine because I'm not essentially trying to uh, tailor things to uh, to create finance, you know, a financial return. I'm just interested in the subject and, and what I can find out. Do you think that there's a, a chance of it being picked up by a network? It's possible. The, the the person I'm I won't mention the director I'm working with, but he's worked for some of the major channels, and um, he has had a lot of uh, successful documentaries of this nature, of the, the observational, sort of human story nature that that have done quite well. So it's possible. But even in conversations between us, we realise that knowing the people you should speak to and having them as contacts doesn't guarantee you anything. I, I would like to say yes. I think it's it's a different concept to look at our country and not others to find things. Um, and um, if they were thinking of budgeting for it, of course it would be quite cheap because we're right here already. Um, so yes, possibly. But um, I would like to say I can't predict the future, I suppose. Well, that's good. I mean, it's kind of like if you have a producer that has a history of being successful with these types of things, uh, he's walking into the situation with a resume that people respect. So hopefully uh, luck is on your side and you, you can get on a network or two. That'd be really cool. That would be awesome. That would be really awesome. Even from my perspective, uh, selfishly wanting to see you know, the beautiful areas uh, of my own country. Of course. I probably haven't seen before. And I have been to Loch Ness once or twice in the past. Um, but there are actually just over 31,000 lochs and lochens in Scotland. You know, so there's so many undiscovered places, and a part of the research I, I'm looking at in the book, Beast of Britain, is to look at um, sightings and try to correlate them with other factors, not only in Loch Ness, but in other lochs where there have been one or two sightings as well. And um, I wrote a chapter in the book called Following the Shoals, um, in, you know, in this case meaning the, the fish shoals, and um, there was a sighting here in London in 2016, you see, of a a large three-humped creature, very, very large. It was filmed from the um, the cable car going across the Thames River in London. And there were three separate filmed sightings of this creature over a two-week period, uh, which for all intents and purposes seemed to represent some sort of Loch Ness monster kind of creature. Now, 
you know, right in the middle of the Thames in, um, in March to April, that's, this is a busy waterway. You know, this isn't exactly some, you know, absurdly rural place where you never see anything and whatever it was clearly was a visitor. So I had this idea and I thought, okay, let's see what kind of fish migrations we're having at the moment in this area. What I discovered was as the eel migration starts at that point, they start returning through the Thames up into the river there. And I looked a bit further and, and saw there were sightings of um, uh, the Loch Ness, Loch Ness monster and another um, sea monster called Morgaur in um, Cornwall. They've been sighted eating eels. So I thought, okay, so maybe this creature was chasing a shell. Why don't we try to figure out with places like Loch Ness that have more frequent regular sightings, um, what kind of fish movement we have, what kind of stocks we have, uh, and when they come and go. What I discovered was, I said, there was a correlation over 15 years uh, between um, how much rainfall there was, which affected the, the salmon catch, the numbers of the salmon catch, because there were less insects. And, of course, they're insectivorous, these fish. And when there were less salmon, there were less sightings. And suddenly there it was. You know, there's one link that you can look at. And if you, you know, manage to correlate uh, this kind of information regularly, um, perhaps there would be a way to predict future sightings or at least a likely sighting in an area at a certain time based upon environmental factors and, and other things like fish stocks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, I come from, I think I got started with the cryptid stuff with the Bigfoot thing. And, you know, it's kind of like what we say with Bigfoot, follow the food, you know, that's kind of, yeah, exactly. the basics exactly. of life, you know, um, you know, people say do you, to me, do you think Bigfoot migrates? And I, I say, well, I, I think Bigfoot follows the food. So if that means they migrate, they migrate because I, if Bigfoot's out there, they need to follow where the food sources are. And uh, that's a seasonal thing. So uh, that's really interesting, though, that you made that correlation. Now, you said that there's yeah. 31,000 locks in the UK? Uh, no, there's 31,400, I think, is the number um, lochs and lochens. Lochens are like small locks. Now, loch is just a Scottish name for a lake. Right. Um, so that's what we call them. There. And that's just in Scotland. And the Isles are under Scotland. That's that's incredible. There. I mean, it's incredible amount, and many of them are connected to each other or connected to the sea in some way. So Loch Ness is connected to Loch Lochy, Loch Oich, amidst others, and eventually patters out of the sea through the River Ness on one side. On the other side, it, it has a more awkward route because there's a few uh, locks, L-O-C-K-S locks as through the Caledonian Canal and, and other places that it has to navigate to get out of the sea, which would be, um, um, I don't know, I'm just telling you exactly the route it should take here. Sorry. Yes, okay. So if it was coming in from the sea on the on the west side, it would be via Loch Linia, Loch Hill, the river Loch Hill, Loch 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 Oich, and the river Oich to Fort Augustus, and then into Loch Ness. Now, that's route. It does have a few locks along the way, canals. Um, but if the creature is amphibious, and this area, rurally at night, there's no lighting. It's just blackness. I've been there a few times. Why well, can it perhaps, you know, uh, travel across land for short periods 
just to get to the other, you know, the other body of water it needs to reach. Or why couldn't they move between the rivers to the other lochs that the uh, that Loch Ness is connected to, searching for food or, you know, uh, habitation? I, I personally think this is a creature that is sometimes based at sea. There are sea sightings around the coast of Scotland, and sometimes based in Loch Ness and other lochs um, in the um, in Scotland, in the Scottish Highlands. And that's why we only see them occasionally. We see them when they're moving through, when they're in the loch. So you think that this could possibly cross land at times? Yes. I mean, there have been land sightings over the years. Um, and they only actually account for 6% of all the sightings. As a loch If you think that there's allegedly 11,000 of those sightings and it lasts 84 years, then it's very infrequent. I'm not really thinking that it's a migratory animal, but more that it has a transient presence in this loch and others, and occasionally it's in the sea as well. And that's probably following food sources or, or perhaps a roaming behavior of some kind. It's just a theory. But in my mind, most people ignore the fact of the connected lochs to Loch Ness. They ignore the fact that you can reach the sea you know, if you uh, wade through shallows at some point or, or cross certain lochs or small pieces of land. Well, we're only really talking about, um, for instance, with the Caledonian Canal is exiting the loch before the canal and entering it again just afterwards, you know, for an easier route through, um, which isn't out of the, um, the realm of possibility for, um, you know, for an amphibious animal. That's That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating because I remember when I was a kid, uh, for what, first off, I would like to say you're absolutely right because over here, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that heard of what you just said, but I don't remember hearing people talk about these things going on land. Uh, but I do remember now that you mentioned it, that when I was a kid, I used to take a book out of the library at school about Loch Ness Monster. And I remember in the book, there was a sighting of somebody saying they saw it on land. And I remember yeah. thinking as a kid, that that's impossible because it's a fish. But hearing you well, say that, you know, it, it just kind of brought all that back to me. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's really interesting. I, th- I think it is very interesting that that could be a possibility. Um, there aren't a lot of land sightings, and most of them are disputed. Now, what you normally find with Loch Ness research is that there are so many people dedicated to this kind of research who actually are really, really against the possibility of it being a real creature. So you have people that have been, um, you know, dug in, if you will, uh, at the lock for the last five decades. Uh, I won't mention any names. They're very good researchers. But their opinion is that there is no Loch Ness Monster. These alleged 11,000 sightings and it's been seven this year, there were seven last year, are just mistaken identities. They're all based upon um, persons wanting to see the monster, which, you know, is, is a reasonable point of view, actually, you know, if since it's so famous. Um, if you look around the world, you know, almost almost every other monster around the world is named in emulation of it in some way. You know, if you've got Nesky in Russia and um, uh, Issy in Japan and, and, and things like this, so... Yes, people might have monsters on the brain when they come in to Loch Ness to holiday. And I I had my honeymoon there. I've got a very understanding wife. And um, you know, sure enough, I was transfixed on this loch the whole time. And 
it's very hard to see anything on the surface of the water. This, it's very deep body water, and the water moves in a very strange way because of the different currents and the winds that hit this you know, long, thin uh, loch um, in the Scottish Highlands there. So I personally thought it would be very hard to make something out clearly that wasn't very distinct on the water. I could see how people might think bow waves and wakes with a monster, but it didn't really have much explanation for things like the um, the head and neck or the big two or three humps, um, you know, 40 to 50 feet long, moving at speed and displacing water. That doesn't seem to be easy to mistake for anything else, not a giant eel, not a sturgeon, which incidentally have never ever been spotted in the lock or caught there. Um, oh, I think Greenland shark is what Jeremy Wade said from River Monsters when he investigated it. Um, but again, you know, even something like that would only account for uh, a sighting, you know, where you see a long, flat body in the water. It wouldn't account for anything you see on land or a raised arch neck or, or anything like that. And even the biggest water birds there couldn't account for that. And it's it's a strange position. Um, I write in the book about the mystery, the only true mystery of Loch Ness is um, why we have so many researchers there still who don't believe in it. And yet, even though they've concluded there's no monster, they're still there researching. Um, and it seems like the most sad and most failed scientific experiment in history, you've concluded your experiment was, was a failure. You didn't find what you were looking for, and yet you're still there. And that could be financial. There's a lot of money made at the lock. And it's a beautiful area. You know, they might just like living there. And that's a way to make money in the highlands, which doesn't have really much uh, industry at all. But for me, it's a strange thing. You know, this, um, this area of cryptozoology research actually has the most critics within it, rather than without. See, I didn't know that. And I, I find that peculiar as well, that... Uh, the researchers themselves are so uh, critical of the existence of this creature. I find that interesting. Mm. And, you know, it again, kind of like the Bigfoot community I've been part of, you know, there's a mm. lot of people in there that they, they're, they're research, like they, they will research the topic avidly, but they're mm. not, but they, they really don't believe it exists. And I guess it, it, in a certain sense, I mean, it, it lends to, um, it's skepticism. It's fine, right? Yeah. And, and you know, if if you do find anything, then it's more credible, I guess. I don't know, but uh, yeah. yeah. If, I, I, if mean, I didn't believe that something existed, I don't know if I could <laughs> could continue researching <laughs> it for that long. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's um, I, I personally think I talked to some other really great researchers about this. And everybody's got their theory, and some of them are really far out, and some of them are a bit more plausible. <clears throat> now, what I'm, I am a proponent of the plesiosaur theory, and I get a lot of criticism for that because you get criticised for believing that reports could resemble something that's supposed to have died out you know, a long time ago, allegedly. Um, but all of the, well, most of the reports. Uh, not only in Loch Ness, so I don't only look here, but I look around the world to see corresponding reports like Champlain and uh, Ogaboe and, and things like that. And even in this country, around the, the coast and the other lakes. So all of the reports most often correspond to a place you saw description, and yet nobody, even the researchers who love the subject, are nobody's allowed to say that. Nobody will say it. 
I got criticised quite fiercely by by one person recently for saying that it is a place you saw based on the descriptions, because no serious or cryptozoologist or cryptozoologist um, worth his weight would believe such a thing these days. So the question I put to this person was, well, if all of the reports describe, uh, or many of the reports would describe uh, places or like features all around the world, and yet I'm supposed to say it's not because no decent researcher would believe that, then that seems quite odd to me. It doesn't seem scientific. Um, people propose things like a giant long neck seal, right? Or um, uh, giant eel, giant catfish, uh, many of the things that an otter, many otters being mistaken for something. Seals are often, you know, uh, used as a as an excuse, but they don't often get into the lock. And when you see seals, they're very discernible. It's a very typical animal. And yet, you look at these reports around the country, and she, oh, here's that description time and time again, and in the US and in Russia and other places, variations of this plesiosaur uh, type animal, maybe different types of species of them, but variations nonetheless that have a corroboration. Um, I'm not to labour it too much, but I think you know if we were hunting some known criminal and a hundred different witnesses gave the same description, and we said, well, no, it can't be him because um, he doesn't exist. <laughs> Surely we'd have to say, well, actually, you know, these these guys they don't know each other, and they keep describing the same person. Maybe it's that person. Right, absolutely. Have you have you heard of lake monsters or um, sea monsters in the United States? I know there's rumors of certain, I guess, sea monster in the Great Lakes. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I've heard of a few actually. So um, there's uh, the Altamaha, right? Uh, is that in Mississippi somewhere? Uh, lake Champlain, uh, Champ, obviously. Uh, Ogopogo, Igipogo, I'm aware of, and I think that's in uh, the, the corresponding lake. Um, there was a creature that was sort of Mosasaur like that. There's the uh, Cassie, Chessie, yeah. I think. Um, Chesapeake Bay, Caddy, obviously. Uh, the Cabrasaurus, that's a, a very well-known one. And I believe, was there one in Lake Erie as well? I think there are many, many reports. Yeah. I used to have a list of them uh, for the American ones. And I've, they've kind of slipped out of my mind recently. I've been so focused on this British thing, seem to have ignored all, all other cryptozoologists <laughs> last year. <laughs> Huge things have probably happened, and I've just completely blanked it. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I I know that it's kind of like um, if somebody's going to say that it's impossible for there to be a sea monster anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it for me, it doesn't make sense because if if there is any kind of cryptid, unless it's a, a supernatural cryptid yeah. it would it would need to reproduce which means that there would be a population of them somewhere of and of the fact that we're talking about sea monsters i mean the ocean is very much undiscovered you know yeah. so i mean who's to say what's down there because we can't get down there to see it we can't and and even in a place like uh, if you want to talk about loch ness in that regard i mean it's some people say it's 700 feet deep in places. Some people say 900 feet. I'm not really sure. It's disputed, but it's very, very deep. And the water is brown. All of the peat from the local hills runs down, and they have a lot of rain there into the, the loch. And you can't see, you know, more than 
10, 20 feet below the surface. Now, there's plenty of room in there for a family, you know, of large animals to live. When people say oh, there isn't really plenty of food, but there is. It comes in and out, but there's there's plenty going on there. Um, and yet, you know, people say, well, it couldn't possibly be the Loch Ness, and yet we haven't completely charted all of it. We haven't discovered all of the little caves going off to the side. You know, it's in complete blackness. So who knows what's there? We don't know. And the most important thing, well, I, I discovered when I was there is once it gets dark, this is a, a feature of rural uh, Britain, there are, there's no extra lighting. It's just black. <laughs> you couldn't see. I stood right next to the lock and you could not see anything. And I thought, well, something could actually be right next to me right now. And I wouldn't have a clue. Wow, that's kind of creepy to think about <laughs> i did get a bit creeped out actually at that point when i went back to the hotel <laughs> yeah well i mean you brought up a good point earlier about how these things might be able to commute back and forth from bigger bodies of water into the lock and things like that and i think that idea presents such a uh, a dichotomy that it really i mean when you look at that and you're like well maybe they, they could exist then if, especially if they're not living in one centralized location uh go ahead I was just going to say that that's what I think. It, that's um, it could be seen as an excuse. A lot of people would dispute um, the travel overland for reasons of well, they would be seen. Well, they have been seen. So yes, they would be seen, but not all the time. And again, we say at night time if there are a nocturnal animal and they travel overland at night for short distances only. And, and it, this, it's heavily wooded, you know, and there's hills surrounding it everywhere. The loch. Yeah, they could quite easily. The population is tiny. They could quite easily, I think, move across land. I think the most difficult route for them from the loch to the sea would be via the River Ness, because parts of it actually directly pass through the town of Inverness. Uh, and if you walk along, it's incredibly shallow at points. So that, to me, seems less likely than the other route with the locks and the canals and uh, and everything else. And this route out to the, the sea. But then we have to think about the first reported sighting of Nessie by St. Columba was, uh, I think it was at 565, I've probably got the date wrong now, was in the River Ness and not in the loch at all. I mean, so, yeah. Yeah, clearly the, the animal has been, yeah, seen there, although I'm guessing that it wasn't as developed in 565 as it is now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes. So, you know, they do move about. That's not. I, that's not the only thing with like monsters and, and sea monsters and bring that all around um, the country, all around the country. And there's a few sightings, uh, just quickly tell you about these, if that's okay. Um, so there was a sighting in 2010 in the river Mersey, which is at the top of North Wales uh, near Liverpool. And uh, that river then goes around to the other side. And there's a sighting there, um, you know, near the River Dee, which goes all the way to Lake Bala in North Wales, where we have Teji, the Lake Bala monster, which resembles a plesiosaur, believe it or not. And then in 2016, we had this sighting in the um, Aberaran River, which is not so far from uh, a famous monster hub called uh, Barmouth, the Barmouth Estuary Monster. And it's just parts of the coast. You can almost see this habit of this creature moving down, moving into these little waterways and estuaries, coming out again, you know, perhaps going in further to a lake here or there. And uh, 
lot of the route is very rural, very um, isolated. People say, well, it couldn't happen. You know, we'd know. But if you travel through the countryside here, it's not like the US. We have lots of off, off, off the path hikers. People going about. Most of us stick to the route, to the path. You know, we're we're on the path kind of people. We go to lovely beauty spots and things, but we generally don't go searching in the middle of the night for things in the rolling hills and fields and forests. Nobody's out there looking. And I think that's that's the key to this. These are how things have been. This is how things have been hidden because they're, they're taking a nocturnal route uh, to their movements. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I, I didn't realize that there was uh, that kind of number of recent sightings. Uh, Lots. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. When when you talk about, and this is kind of backtracking a little bit here, but it might also lend to some thoughts as to how some of these people who are having these sightings nowadays can go about looking for this stuff. When you were talking about these things possibly crossing some land, have you ever heard of any accounts of people finding maybe big drag marks across land that's undescribed, under, like nobody can really describe or understand what caused it? Uh, because I'm assuming that these things don't have legs, right? They would have to drag themselves across land. I'm assuming it's flippers or fins of some some kind. Um, in Loch Ness, I've not heard of drag marks. Um, I did hear one story, but I was never able to substantiate it. But the way I explained it to myself is, well, actually, there's um, a lot of rain in that region. You know, it could be across a, a grassy plain, but also I think a lot of the rain would wash a lot of what's um, left out. You know, they have that kind of rainfall. But in uh, the sighting I was talking to you about in the the Barmouth estuary, um, where that creature was sort of, it had a pleasant sort of look to it. It was witnessed walking across land a couple of times in the estuary with a crocodile-like appearance but with a long neck and more of a rounded head and round hippoish kind of feet marks up of footprints with extended claws in them. Um, so this animal was witnessed on land several times in that area uh, over a course of many years and has also left footprints many times as well, uh, as well as um, drag marks and footprints people have seen coming out of the, the sea uh, onto a beach. I think it was witnessed in the, I haven't really, I think it was in the 80s by a group of schoolgirls who said that the animal um, saw them coming along the beach at dusk and quickly dragged itself back into the water, um, appeared in a sort of typical lake monster fashion, sort of a bumpy, humpy kind of back, long neck, um, uh, with a sort of a rounded turtle-like head and large green eyes, made its way into the water and uh, was there staring at them. I guess I think it was around about 20 feet long. So there's hundreds of stories um, like that around the UK. A really good source, and probably the best lake and sea monster book about the UK, it's called um, uh, Sea Monsters, uh, so Sea Serpents and Lake Monsters of the British Isles by Paul Harrison. And he's just painstakingly gone through very old to very modern reports, you know, one by one, and listed the report uh, chronologically. Um, even though he is determined that it's some sort of giant eel. You know, he kind of indicates in the book that his theory isn't foolproof. You know, it's just his preferred view of what it would be. You mentioned earlier about the caves. Is that a common thing in, in the locks over there, that there's caves underneath the water? That 
there are some known caves, I, I, um, as far as I'm aware. But again, this is in dispute. Nobody's really got down there to um, to investigate uh, properly uh, what's happening down there and what they have. Either I think it's because the, the finance and the interest is no longer there you know, to investigate these um, these supposed caves and maybe airlocks that could be under the lock. Or the conditions are too difficult. Yeah, I don't know what they would need, but even with an SUV, you're not going to see anything in front of you. Now they have, I think they have uh, sonar mapped the bottom of the lock, and it's all wrinkled up. There are allegedly several areas that appear to be caves, but I don't think anything further has been done about that. Well, that's really fascinating. And I know you were talking about earlier how there's other cryptids in the UK that you're you know, currently looking into and things like that. And obviously one of those is Bigfoot. And I, I know of a guy and you, you probably do know who he is. Uh, he has a YouTube channel. His name is uh, Bigfoot Tony. And yes. uh, I'm friends with him on Facebook and we've talked a few times. He's a really good guy and he's actually uncovered some pretty interesting stuff. He has, he really has. Now, um, Jason or Bigfoot Tony, his name is, I, I only know him uh, through the, the British Bigfoot Research Group. The head of that group is Deborah Hatswell. And what she's done over, uh, she had a sighting in the 80s uh, in Wheel Hill, which is a sort of a big country estate, when she and another person were um, they called bunking off school. So they took the day off school and they went and hid and smoked in some country estate there. And she saw this Bigfoot creature before anybody in the UK knew what Bigfoot was. And, you know, it really affected her deeply. So the next for decades, she compiled all these sightings and has this Facebook group of which Bigfoot Tony is a part. And what he does amazingly well is is the breakdown of the sightings. I know he covers international sightings, actually, not just UK ones. Um, and he does some really insightful and matter-of-fact breakdown. And you can see he's an interest in the subject, but he's not looking to prove something that's not true. Um, and I've seen him debunk a few things as well, but generally speaking, he's really you know, one of the main guys for it. Did you ever see his um, footage on Caerphilly Mountain? That's a mountain in uh, South Wales of the Bigfoot pushing a tree and he accidentally captured. Yes, the one where he was actually pointing at a branch in front of him and he caught the tree in the mm. background. Yeah, and this big figure at the bottom pushing it. Uh, I thought that was quite amazing. You know, There were others... Um, he would be one of the primary characters here. Deborah Hatswell, I, I think she'd be the, the main person for everybody. Um, and then you have Christopher Turner. He's producing the documentary Elusive we talked about. Um, many, many other people as well. That we're, uh, there's um, Neil Young, uh, who's centered in Harwood Forest. You might have seen his section on the, the uh, Finding Bigfoot British edition. Uh, I think I have, yeah. Did you ever see that? Yeah, so he actually featured on that and he had some photos and um, he's actually played to me a very interesting clip of possible infrasound below 20HC then. Uh, he and another researcher recorded at his research site right after they felt very uneasy and for reasons unknown to them, left the site overnight and went to camp somewhere else and came back and got the recorder the next day. And what was really interesting about this, if infrasound is real, you know, uh, in, for these creatures, I mean, and is used to um, 
uh, create an uneasy feeling, which lots of people describe before or after a Bigfoot sighting, a very sort of a, a weird sense of doom or dread. Uh, a lot of people have talked about that. Yeah, and you know, with the infrasound idea of things, I know when I first heard about that, I thought that was crazy. It was, you know, weird and stuff. But then I looked into that a little bit and I just saw that other animals do have this ability. Tigers, giraffes, whales. Yes. I know ti- elephants. elephants. Tigers actually use infrasound as a weapon to disable yes. their prey. Exactly. They stun their prey. I thought that was amazing. Um, you know, you could possibly, there's so many accounts of that. I even. Um, picked up accounts um, on yowiehunters.com, the, the Australian uh, radio show to interview yowie witnesses, which is like the Bigfoot over there. And um, although they don't talk about this, I picked up on a sighting where three hunters had felt something very, very uneasy. This feeling of dread came over them. and They weren't fearful people. And then they witnessed these Bigfoot and, uh, or yowies. And um, I thought, that's it. This keeps coming up now and again, like the stale smell, you know, like the um, these weird characteristics they have. Um, maybe the infrasound, this is a get out of my area, you know, weapon, get away from me. And what Neil described to me is that they wouldn't have left the area ordinarily because it was a viable research area. Yet they just felt a bit unnerved and they left, unconsciously left. They didn't question why are we leaving. And when they came back the next day, they found they'd recorded this this sound, uh, which sounds very impressive. Yeah, that's fascinating because, I mean, if you're out there looking for this stuff and you're actually out there researching these, the possibility of these creatures, you know, you wouldn't voluntarily leave an area that you think is possible exactly. to host something. <laughs> but yes. if it's, you know, infrasound where inside, if for some reason, it just, I don't know, I, don't, I guess it's a, like some kind of a subliminal messaging that happens within yeah. your inner body that you just, for whatever reason... Doesn't make sense, but you just wind up believing. That's really interesting. It is, yeah. No, it definitely made an impression on me. So Tony is doing his stuff over there with the videos, and he's you know found different different evidences with his videos on 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 YouTube. Yeah. Uh, outside of him, because he's the he's the one I really know over over there. Has there been anybody recently that has uncovered any evidence of Bigfoot? Uh, in the UK? There have been some footprints. Um, actually, one of them features in uh, in my book, and that was also passed to me by a friend of Neil Young's. Um, and I think it was around 18 inches long, the footprint, which um, could be within the size of a person, but a very big person, if that was the case, walking around barefoot in the mud. Um, so there are, there are a few footprints, but they're not really as distinguishable uh, from what I can see, I think there was also some alleged baby Bigfoot footprints as well in uh, Drinkwater Park, um, which is uh, a research area of a great researcher called Robert Lee Harper. But again, it's you know we've got a very wet country. There's a lot of rain and muddy ground, and you know which is very grassy as well, and they don't seem to really stick. Um, I think Bigfoot Tony has the best evidence so far with the the tree pusher. That's the first real video evidence of anything. There was also a lady in um, in uh, Kent who witnessed something a few years ago running out of the, um, I think it was in Arundel Forest, running out of the bushes. Her dog chased it out. 
which appeared like a, a large hairy man, stooped down and, and running in sort of a forward motion. And she did have a very blurry picture of that, made the papers. Um, it's hard really to know if that was genuine or not. And there, there are lots of sightings, modern sightings. Um, I was actually up investigating um, a Bigfoot sighting. Now, this isn't the most recent one, but it's one of my favorites, and it's uh, called the Box Hill Ape. And that was witnessed in uh, summer of 2012. And Box Hill is an area in the North Downs. It's an AONB, so we call it an area of natural, uh, outstanding natural beauty. Um, and that's in Surrey. That's the area I'm in. And there was a, there's, it's a, about a 300 feet elevation, this hill. And on one side of it, it's, it's deeply forested all around. On one side, there's these really steep steps. They call them steps. And really what they are is a two and a half long pieces of earth hedged in with some wood to form these steps. And it winds down and it's heavily forested on the other side. And at the bottom is a stream with these round, pretty stepping stones that go across it. So a, a jogger uh, at that time had heard some wood knocks whilst running in this area, but didn't really think anything of it. They didn't know what a wood knock was. Uh, they just thought maybe some work was going on somewhere. And after their job, they rested on these uh, steps, uh, which I, I walked down recently myself, and they're very, you know, very steep and, and very uh, winding and hidden. And uh, they heard somebody coming down the steps behind them and thinking it was a dog walker. They just sat to the side to let them pass, and, and nobody passed. So looking back, uh, having a, an unnerved feeling, and then looking back, they saw a large muscular ape, something like an ape, uh, standing on two legs, um, over six feet tall, it was covered in brown fur with grey patches in it. And what they described was that the face was very human-looking with a flat nose, but the jaw seemed big and out of proportion to the head, and the head itself was domed at the top, like a gorilla almost. And they looked at them for about 30 seconds and then left, whilst all the time looking back over its shoulder to check where the, the person was. And one of the significant things that comes up time and time again that this person mentioned was it was a stale farm animal kind of smell that lingered afterwards, not during, but once it left. I wondered, again, you know, we hear about these bad smells from Bigfoots and things like that. That to me was... um. Yeah, it, it hit a chord because here's the, the register. This person doesn't know anything about these creatures. And yet one of the things that stands out to them is there's a bad smell afterwards. And that to me, that's a tick in the box. You know, Bigfoot leaves a bad smell. Yeah. And um, I thought that was, you know, it's a really, really great sighting. And there's lots of other things like, like that here. Um, I'll give you another one if you want, actually. Go for it. Um, now, this one I, I really, really like because um, it it's in it happened in Bristol. That's in the um, in the southwest of England, Bristol. Um, and uh, this was in August of 2013. And there's a a, a woods or a forest they called Lee Woods Nature Reserve. And uh, the walker was walking through the woods, just taking a leisurely walk. And uh, they witnessed something that they described as a wild man, so a hairy, large man uh, that was digging in the earth with a twig. And then it picked something up, then it dug up and began eating it, then used another twig to pick its teeth. Then the person saw, uh, the witness saw the creature weave some twigs together, stand up, snap a large tree branch, 
and lean it against another tree and walk off. Now, the description was really, you know, really amazing. The description was that it was over six feet tall, um, old looking, with grey skin. And throughout the, um, the sighting, um, it seemed to be chattering to something off to its left side, I think. So he felt that there was something else or another one somewhere you know, in this area. But all, all of the elements of this is it's a very ape-like, you know, it's using a tool to feed. And then you've got the Bigfoot things, you know, it, it, it picks its teeth, it snaps at the tree branch, it's another Bigfoot uh, habit, and leans it against another tree. So these sticklings, they come up time and time again, as well as weaving the twigs together, where they call them glyphs. You know, these little glyphs, like the egg glyph, and these different types of shapes that are left in areas time and time again. That's an ape-like characteristic, you know, apes, leaf signs, they, they communicate. And um, I, I just thought it was an amazing sighting to, you know, to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I've heard of people saying that, you know, Bigfoot will do stick leans. And I personally mm-hmm. was out in the woods once where I came across an area where everywhere I looked, there was these stick leans where it, uh, and it wasn't that, a, a stick or a branch broke off a tree and fell and leaned against the tree because the part that was broken off the tree was actually in the ground. So it was like leaning on the ground. So like something, it, it wasn't like it just broke and fell down that way. And yeah, every, every single lean was like that. And there was tons of them all over the place. Uh, it was a very interesting investigation. I've never, I've never seen uh, a Bigfoot myself, but that Maybe. day we we have we uns- we found so much stuff that day anywhere from the stri- the 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 stick leans to an actual TP structure that was absolutely huge and we also found a footprint that day so all those oh, different wow. things coming together it was like okay well this might be an area that's a hot zone uh, i find it interesting when people describe characteristics of a bigfoot when they have no clue about Bigfoot at all, like they don't, they're not interested in the topic. They just tell you what they saw, and they say that they saw Lena, a stick against a tree, or it smelled really bad, and they describe the smell, and it kind of gives validity to all the other people who say these things. You know, when you have somebody who they they have no history with Bigfoot, but they will describe something that is a very common thing throughout all the encounters. That that's right, actually, and, and that's one of the most important thing about the British Bigfoot sightings. Uh, unlike the U.S., uh, this is not a known phenomenon here. So even when you mention it to other cryptozoologists, they're quite surprised and mostly see outright. Well, this is not the habitat. There's no British Bigfoot here. It's just because of the American phenomenon. But that's not actually very popular here. Nobody thinks that we have Bigfoot, and you know to have sightings. Come in. They, they generally come in, and many of these being reported by uh, by Deborah Hatswell of the um, the British Bigfoot Research Group. She has this amazing interactive map on Google, and you can find it on this site where you can actually click on the, the part of the the, uh, the map where the site is taking place, and it will bring up the um, the witness sighting. You can read it whilst looking at the map. It's it's really amazing. And she's really painstakingly put these together, you know, over a big period of years. And generally these days, she tells me she's getting two to three sightings a week, oftentimes, coming through to her. 
Wow. Because people have suddenly started to realize, actually, you know, there's somebody I can tell about this. So there's something going on. Somebody knows about these things. I think it's not a British um, characteristic to make up stories about things. Obviously, some people do, but it's not a general thing that we do because you don't normally get positive attention. You won't make any money from it for stars. You won't go on some sort of tour, giving lectures and talks. <laughs> and, um, you know, you probably will just get a bit of uh, negative attention in the workplace and, and through the people that you know. And um, I, I made a joke to another interviewer about it saying, well, you know, you won't lose your job, but you can imagine the meeting, you know, should we promote Andy uh, to the position of, well, yes, sure. But let's promote Dave because Andy thinks there's a Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a bit weird. So um, you've seen his little blog, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a bit strange. Let's not promote that guy. I'm not saying it would happen, but that's, you know, it's a bit weird. It's like saying, it's the equivalent of saying UFOs, you know? I was abducted by aliens. You might as well say I was abducted by aliens than say you saw a Bigfoot or a a late monster or something. Right. And, um, I think that's where we, we differ slightly. We've got a small island as well. It's very overpopulated in the urban centers, but they actually only, urban sprawl only accounts for 16% of the whole landmass. Every, everywhere else is farmland and hills and countryside and woods and uninhabited areas or very underpopulated areas of rural countryside. And even the people that live here in this country, they don't realize that. Because they live in their big, like me, in near London, in your big, busy city. So how could there be habitat? Look, look at all these people. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, there is. And I think that's um, that's a really significant turning point that we're trying to get to with the book as well. Right. And the show, if it comes about saying, well, actually, look, you know, look on Google Earth. Look at your country. <laughs> it's just all green. It's just green <laughs> and countryside and fields and hills. And, you know, there's nobody walking around there in the middle of the night. Why would they be? If it's something out in the middle of nowhere, we've got, it's not going to be spotted. We've got so many, so many, um, uh, such high numbers of um, farm animals like sheep. We've got 20 million sheep in the country. Um, almost 10 million of those in Wales, which is where I come from, and, and big for Tony too, by the way. So that's we're only 3 million population in Wales. So you can imagine that's a, that's a big number. Uh, there's 4 million deer in England alone. There's great fish stocks and, you know, and cows and small mammals, and just there's no natural predators that we know of. Um, it would be easy you know, to survive out there in this country, unseen, because who's looking for you? Right. And that's a common thing that I hear from a lot of people, even around here, is that there's so many people that where would they live? And people just don't get it. Like, they just don't get it. I mean, I live in a very urbanized area myself. I mean, I'm 45 minutes west of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that's the fifth biggest city in the country. And so, I mean, just because I'm 45 minutes west of Philly, Philly kind of dumps into my area because it's such a big city. Uh, But people don't get it that between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania alone, there's just all woods. I mean, there's, there's little cities here and there, but Uh it's mostly just mountains and woods. And people just don't really get that. They don't really comprehend how much land is out there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, especially in the U S I mean, sure. 
they're just the highways are just just you and a bunch of trees, right? Yeah, driving for hours and hours. You brought up a really good point earlier. People stick to the paths. They don't That's really right. go off paths like I do when I go out there. But yeah. most people they stick to paths, and even when they go hiking, they take the designated path that has signs telling you which way to go. And you know, if there's a semi-intelligent—I don't even say semi-intelligent—if there's an intelligent creature out there that does not want to be seen by human beings, and their yeah. you know natural instinct is to be seclusive, they're not going to be crossing the path in front of you unless they want to. Yeah, no, that that's right. And I mean, I think we also have um, a significant amount of um, a significant amount of um, road crossings here. So a significant amount of our sightings are road crossings. Are just the same as it happens in the US and in Canada and other places because you know you're driving on the road and they have to cross at some point and that's the most likely place that you're actually going to bump into them. You know, because when you're in their environment, unless they want to show themselves or they're really caught off guard, it's very unlikely that you're going to see one. And um, people have said, well, where's the history for the British Bigfoot? Now, they actually used to be called Woodwows. Okay, uh, which is oddly where the name Woodhouse comes from in this country. And the Woodwose was the hairy man of the forest, you know, the forest guardian, similar to the, the green man that lived in the forest. And the, all of our old statues and depictions of the Woodwose is covered in hair. You know, often carries a club as well or a stick, you know, so another tool user. And I think that's amazing. You know, we're always very happy. It's the same with old dragon legends, you know, when you, you talk about possible surviving dinosaurs or, you know, prehistoric lizards, reptiles, I mean. Um, everybody else with the evidence is, if you name dragons, many of which, you know, almost clearly directly um, uh, look like pterosaurs or other sort of uh, extinct creatures, um, they say, well, no, no, that's, uh, that's mythology, you know. But when you look at these myths, they're normally just stories told in the same matter-of-fact way as these modern sightings are. Right. And I, you know, I really think, well, okay, yes, some of them are composite animals. So in Wales, we have the Welsh dragon. You probably notice that on the flag if you've ever seen it. It's a big red dragon on a green and white flag. It has four legs and a pair of wings, and um, this sort of dragon-like face, but with a, a horn on its. Uh, upper and lower jaw, uh, wings with bat-like fingers in them, and then this long tail with a significantly, significantly, sorry, a sail tail at the end, this diamond-shaped tail, which is in pterosaurs as a cartilaginous, uh, sorry, I can't say that, cartilaginous uh, formation. That's not something when this Welsh dragon was created that would have been known about. So somebody complained to me when I mentioned it, well, about the Welsh dragon with the sail tail. They said, yeah, but it has the bat wings instead of the pterosaur wings. I said, okay, sure, it's a composite animal put together by people who've heard about something, and they always relate it to something they know. But I always thought that the um, the two horns on the upper and lower jaw, jaw were actually uh, a way of trying to express the beak of the pterosaur. And it's, you have to look it up at some point and then just look at the the Welsh, just look at the Welsh flag and you'll see it. It's very interesting. Yeah, so composite animal. And all of our old pictures here, the wyvern, for example, it's almost a classic pterosaur. It's two-legged. It's got the, the leather wings. It's got the sail tail. It's got the beak. And that's 
that's been in existence in our country for over a thousand years, is um, this mythical animal. And yet we're like, no, no, no. You know, these people saw fossils or they saw bones of dinosaurs or, or whatever, and they made up the rest and just got lucky. It just sounds like a bit of a stretch to me. Yeah, absolutely. Has, has there been a history of any kind of other off-the-wall cryptids in uh, UK, the UK? Especially like, uh, I know we were talking earlier and you mentioned about flying cryptids. Uh, what, what kind of reports are going on out there with flying cryptids? Um, one of the most recent ones, and I'm, I've taken this from the, uh, the site liveterrorsword.com, and it, this blog has just come out. Now, I've got a list of some in my book, but this one is as recent as September of this year, so I, I think it's uh, significant. Um, so basically, there's somebody in Shropshire in England, which borders Wales and the, the Midlands of England, um, and it only has a population of about 10,000 people. Um, so it's on the border between Wales, and basically a lady was was out uh, there in the um, uh, countryside, and um, she heard a, a very unusual screech, something she'd never heard before, and she was familiar with the local animals like uh, ducks and and geese and, and other things, swans, um, and it was very loud. It was, you know, it was getting closer and closer uh, from behind the trees. So she got curious, and then she saw two pterodactyls flying side by side past the tree. And uh, she said she had to check herself, you know, but they were very, very big, um, if they were birds. And that they had giant beaks on them, and the wings had no feathers. Now, um, now I think it's that's a pterodactyl-like sighting, you know. There are no birds with uh, featherless wings. And they don't exist. She said they were grey in colour. Um, and they flew very, very fast. And because they were so big, she could even see them clearly, you know, when they went between the clearing, between the trees and the houses. It was very, very obvious what they were. Um, and she looked at all day and I did foreign birds, all kinds of creatures that could have perhaps escaped or, you know, got out from a zoo somewhere and couldn't match it anything. Only a pterodactyl match what she saw and yeah i think that's that's really amazing this has just happened literally in this area and that's um that's about as immediate as you can get for a sighting it's really amazing and for me i think there um i don't think these pterosaurs if you know i don't think they're resident in this country i believe that the paps they stop here, traveling through to somewhere else. Maybe it's a migration route because the sightings are very, very rare. Uh, but there are some. That's really fascinating. Uh, the area that she was in, uh, what's the landscape look like? Was it very rural or mountainous? No, it's very rural. Um, Shropshire, it's not really mountainous, but it is on the border of Wales. There must be a little there. Let me just um, have a look, actually. Okay, so it's a county. It's in the West Midlands of England, bordering Powys. That's a region in Wales, and Wrexham in Wales, um, just to the north. Let's just have a look what it says about it. Yes, now look at that. No, it's very, very countryside-ish. Here and, um, hilly, very hilly. Uh, 
arid landscape, nothing but hills and fields and you know, rocky outcrops. That seems to be the, the, the scale of it. 10,000 people you know, over that kind of um, that space is what I think is quite significant. Yeah, I know, uh, I believe in West Virginia, which isn't far from where I live, uh, they talk about having a pterodactyl type creature seen, I guess, often enough that, you know, they're talking about it on on some of these TV shows and stuff. But uh, I find that interesting because it's something that, you know, you look at it and you're like, how in the world could a pterodactyl be out there and existing in a population? If you have, like I said earlier, if you have one, yeah. you have more than one. And so, uh, you know, how in the world could that be out there? And it, But again, I don't think people totally grasp how vast this world is. I mean, there's That's so right. much ro- rurality. Is that a word, rurality? I don't know. Let's so make m- it a word. <laughs> there's so many <laughs> rural places in yeah. this world that people just don't tend to go. I think that's right. And so your country is a very big country. What I've started to grasp in researching sightings in this country is that, you know, the world is the world, essentially, wherever you are. If you've got to walk it, it's pretty big, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everywhere is big when you've got to walk it. So, um, you know, we're not the biggest country in the world, but we've got plenty of rural space, and, uh, and walking it is no mean feat. And a lot of people theorize that, that creatures like pterosaurs are nocturnal, as though there's been lots of nighttime sightings over the years, but there's also, I guess that's an easy out for any creature to say it's nocturnal. That's why we don't see it. But it does explain why, if there is a population or a population moving through, in this case, why they aren't always seen. Because maybe, you know, they, they fly at night and they hunt at night, owls do. Um, you know, you had a tale really of a, I can't remember who this was now, but somebody describing having an owl living at the bottom of their garden. I can't remember which interview it was. And said so they'd been there for 10 years and they'd never seen it. But they can hear it, they know it's in the tree. And you think, well, how can you not see something for 10 years that you know is there? Because wild creatures generally don't want to be seen by us. They're not looking for contact with us. They're looking to avoid contact with us. That's how they survive, because we're the main predator, aren't we? You know, we're, we're, the, um, we're the ones who do all of the hunting and the killing. And hunting's actually not very big here, but I know in the U.S. it is. So if people don't see Bigfoot very often, well, maybe you know, the sound of the guns, etc., <laughs> that come with people is a, is a bit off-putting. Yeah, and you brought up a good point that I don't really think I've ever heard before. And it's just the idea that the world's gotten a lot smaller since the invention of cars. And if you had to walk yes. places all the time, the world all of a sudden seems so much bigger when you have to walk everywhere. Yeah, no, definitely. really, really is. And um, yeah, I've done some of that. I've spent a lot of time up in, in West Wales, in the Priscilla Mountains, uh, where there were some big cat sightings, uh, oddly enough. Um, we talking about the big cats we have thousands of big cat sightings and this you know this is something we think has happened uh because of the um the dangerous wild animals act that we introduced in 1977 and basically people here were keeping you know lions and tigers and all kinds of things in their country properties and you didn't have to have a license and, and there must have been a few incidents but whatever happened they decided okay now this is strict registration and expensive licensing and you have to follow this if you have these animals 
and some of them were let go. At least that's what's you know uh, assumed. And since the 70s until now, there are thousands and thousands of big cat sightings. Normally, something that looks like a you know, melanistic leopard or a jaguar, that, that kind of thing, panther, a panther. That's the most common sighting. But also lots of puma sightings, and occasionally leopards and, and even lions and things like that. So um, the most common one being the panthers, the black panthers, this is something I, I actually know of four personal reports that have been given to me by people I know. I've seen them over the years. And our papers generally run a story every couple of weeks or so. Somebody's seen one somewhere or photographed something. There's so many bits of footage of them. It's become, you know, becoming a point. But cats are, big cats are very conspicuous, aren't they? So how is it they're hiding out perhaps in their hundreds, if not thousands, in the British countryside without being found? Because they're a nocturnal animal. And if you're a nocturnal animal that's clever at hunting and stalking and hiding, people don't find you. <laughs> so it happens to you, you get a glimpse and, and the creature's gone. And I think this this remains the best explanation, this um, this nocturnal habit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree that most of these cryptids, a lot of them are nocturnal. And I know it sounds like it could be an easy escape to, oh, well, it's just nocturnal. Yeah, but was, if it was yeah, sure. If it wasn't nocturnal, it may not be a cryptid because we might already know it exists. Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, when people talk about extinct animals like the plesiosaur no longer being around and they reference, you know, the fossil record or whatever you want to reference in geology. And then, you know, you bring up, obviously, then you bring up the horseshoe crab and the coelacanth. And they say, oh, well, yeah, we know about that. You've been banging on about the coelacanth for ages now. It doesn't make it any less true. Right? <laughs> Does it make it any less relevant than, um, you know, in these 50 million years that they talk about, this fish has never been seen in the fossil record again, and yet here it is in abundant numbers living in our world. And yet we don't think that possibly out there there could be, you know, um, a population of, of plesiosaurs. That seems to be what people are describing. Um, and I think it's because it's it's the pervading paradigm, you know, scientifically speaking. If you question that um, lineage of extinction, then it, it might bode well, for, uh, not bode well for you. And it, similarly with things like Bigfoot, you know, hundred thousand years ago, somewhere along those lines, you've got Gigantopithecus. They never found the hip and leg bones, so it could have been bipedal. So who's to say that it doesn't still exist? There's only a handful of fossils that, that let us know it, it existed at all. And yet here we have an eight to ten foot tall ape in some cases that seems to fit the bill really neatly. Absolutely. And, well, I mean, when you're bringing up the the large cats and everything, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's not your typical cryptid as in, you know, it's unimaginable. Like we know there's large cat, catch cats out there, large cats out there. And the thing is, I don't understand why it's so hard for not us to believe, but people with authority to believe. And I just use that as an yeah. example because like here in Pennsylvania, there, they, the official stance in Pennsylvania is there are no mountain lion in Pennsylvania. Yet I repeatedly have people come to me saying, yeah, I saw a mountain lion, 
just casually, like because people don't even realize that that's that, that, that it's yeah. not supposed to be mountain lions in Pennsylvania because there are mountain lions in Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania <laughs> will not acknowledge their existence, and I don't know why. And in Upper State New York, they do talk about seeing this large panther-like cat, and again, people are like, "Well, I've seen it," and but the the government will say, "Nope, not there." <laughs> We're just what's supposed to believe weird it. About, yeah, what's weird about that though is you have mountain lions in your country. Just not in that state. Right. So who's to say they can't get to that state? Is there like a mountain lion border? <laughs> I know. They, you know? <laughs> they, mountain lions don't know uh, street signs. They don't. Oh, that's Pennsylvania. We're not supposed to be in there. They don't know the way to Pennsylvania. Clearly. I mean, this is this is what's funny about it. Um, do you have bears there as well? I oh, mean, yeah. not in America, but in uh, Pennsylvania. We have black bears in Pennsylvania. Quite. They quite can be quite dangerous. Is that right? Black bears. Uh, I mean, if you corner them or t- mess with their cubs, okay. but generally, black bear, they don't really mess with you too much. They avoid you. Understand? That's the only bear you have. You don't have um, brown bears or grizzlies or anything like that. No, not in Pennsylvania. No, no. So, I mean, that's that's a significant point actually about the bears. So, you know, if they stand up on their back legs and you're seen in a bad light and um, in an intimidating circumstance, a bear could easily be a bigfoot, right? You know, if you don't if not expecting to see one. Right. Um, but here in the UK, that can't be the case because we don't have bears. We haven't had them for a thousand years. So anything bipedal and hairy standing up is unlikely to be a bear. Surely it could be one or two escaped zoo animals perhaps out there. There are one or two rare bear reports. Um, but with the 400 plus reports we have now, the British Bigfoot, it's unlikely. They can account for all of them. Um, and that's an interesting thing for me. I think it really was one of the extra things that validate the possibility of Bigfoot here in this country is that what are people mistaking it for, if something else? And since it's not a phenomenon, a known phenomenon, why are people reporting having seen one? Since there's no, you're not going to get any special attention because of it. It rarely, rarely ever makes the news, not like a late monster sighting does. I, I wrote about uh, a Loch Ness sighting, actually, that was reported to me um, just two days ago, and it, the paper picked it up and sort of printed it, um, mentioned the blog, which is really nice, which I only think is because they stole about four chapters of what I wrote. <laughs> so they mentioned the blog, which is fine because it's publicity. That's great. But it was kind of funny. But, it, you know, those kinds of things make the papers. But the Bigfoot thing, you know, it's not really popular. People haven't heard of it. It's unlikely to to sell any papers bit of a weird one you know that kind of thing yeah i um, i, I want to just quick interject and let you know that yeah, i did yeah. come across your blog just a couple of days ago somebody else was sharing it on facebook so oh, it's, it's making its rounds oh wonderful oh that's nice that's really nice i haven't actually written in there since the summer because i've been writing this book which seemed to come on forever because the more i wrote and the more i found and the more i had to write um and it kind of went on and on and on and on forever um, and I, I just wish I'd been less thorough. <laughs> Does that make sense? Sure. Um, cause I, I'd be out by now. It would be printed. Um, yeah, but that, that's great. I'm going to do a lot more now. Actually, I've got a few more ideas for subjects that aren't actually in the book. You know, the book's finished. And I'm going to get those out and, and start printing stuff that's not going to be a chapter or a lead in there, you know, different things altogether. So hopefully it'll be some nice, interesting subjects you know, in, the, in the next few months. That's that's awesome. So let's. Uh, I know we talked about this in the pre-interview here. 
let's talk about Dogman. What what have you mm. heard about Dogman in that area? So this is more of a um, a lesser known phenomenon. Definitely not as common as the Bigfoot, which I think also complies with the American situation. A less common animal, if it is an animal at all. So um, one of the there's been many sightings here, uh, but they are rare uh, in comparison to Bigfoot. There was a recent one in 2016, uh, several in 2016, actually, of uh, something called the Hull Werewolf. Uh, Hull is a, an area in, uh, uh, in England, in the north of England. And um, it's in East Yorkshire, uh, actually, in, um, in England. There was a, a sighting in 2016 made by a local woman who described the animals running on two legs and then all fours and somehow resembling a human and a wolf together, which I'm, I'm thinking um, could be something to do with the bipedal aspect of it, you know, or the, the figure of it, and having a dog-like face. Um, that same uh, month, uh, a couple then later saw something tall and hairy eating a dog, an Alsatian dog, next to a drainage channel, which runs to the countryside. They say it was eight feet tall, um, and when it, it saw them, Leapt, you know, over the um, over the drainage channel and over a, a large fence with the dog in its mouth, which is quite amazing. Another dog walker then spotted the same um, creature, half dog and half human, um, and her dog was very unnerved and didn't want to go near it. And further on, somebody came face to face with this creature, uh, and this person significantly was an animal rescue worker, so very familiar with different types of animals. And uh, she was driving through the East Riding Village of Halsham, and she saw a creature on all fours, which then suddenly walked towards her car on two legs. And she said it looked like a big dog, probably bigger than a car, covered in cream and grey coloured fur, but with a human face. So, I, you know, I think that's um, it's quite significant. And that was a, there was a big rash of these sightings a big investigation by some paranormal agency up there into it too. Um, and it was called the Hull Werewolf. Uh, and I think it, historically this was known as uh, this creature as uh, Old Stinker or the Beast of Armston Drain so in this um, this area. That's the most, I think, explicit werewolf um, tale we have. There's a second one, I'll tell you very briefly. Uh, there are many more, but this one really stands out because of... Um, the close quarters at which this, this man saw this creature. That was in 1996, in October. And um, a man was en route to see a friend, and he decided to take a shortcut through Camberwell Old Cemetery uh, to save time. Now, Camberwell, you know, it, it's um, it's it's in it's around London. This is this urban, basically. Um, anyway, so he, he took this, uh, this shortcut through the cemetery, and suddenly something grabbed him very strongly by the arm, smashed him into the ground. Looking up, he saw a large creature with dog fur and a head like a German shepherd dog. That's the way he described it. Looking at him really intently, and slobbering and growling, and sniffing his body up and down like a dog would. He said, just as quick as the attack started, it was over, and the beast sprinted off on its hind legs. Now, something very odd about this is, and the way that the, the animal sniffed him, is the witness believed that he was spared because he suffers from a disease that dogs can smell. And that probably because of this, the creature left him alone. Wow. Now that's very odd, isn't it? That he should mention that 
and mentioned the sniffing up and down, and then it, it left him as well. If he was to be prayed, or if he was attacked for trespassing on his territory or whatever was happening, he was left alone because the creature smelled that he was not good food, I guess. <laughs> you know, That's incredible, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, kind of just does give validity to the fact that this guy, he suffers from a disease that dogs can smell, and then this is what happened to him. Yeah. Uh, that's that's incredible. I mean, when it comes to these things, I, I often say to people that, you know, the more sightings there are of these things, the more of a chance that they are real. And, you know, if you want to be a skeptic, that's fine. But basically, all it is, is all it takes is for one person to be telling the truth for whatever they're talking about to exist. And so when you start getting these reports, like, for instance, we talking about Nessie earlier, and I think you said there was, what, 11,000 sightings? A, yeah, I mean, allegedly. It's allegedly, disputed right. all the time. But yeah, conservatively, there's at so, least 1,200. Say, uh, say 1,200. Uh, say 1,200. And of that 1,200, so let's just say 75% are explainable. Yeah. And the, of that 25%, say 15% of that is you know, could go both ways. You still are left with a, a decent percent of things that you just can't explain. And all it takes for, for one of those situations to be true and authentic for that creature to exist. That's right. And, and that's, for me, that's why I side on so many of these different things where I want to look into this stuff because I don't think the mystery is over about our world. I, I think there's a lot of mystery out there left to be unveiled. I think you're right, and I, I think that's the reason there's a sudden resurgence in interest in things like cryptozoology or the paranormal, because people suddenly perceive that you know the, the days of adventure, if you will, the, and discovery are not over. And we've been sold a story that doesn't really ring true. It's not true that everything is explored and mapped. It can be mapped. We've got satellites. We're not. People aren't there. They haven't explored it, and um. I know people bring things up like the gorilla and the Komodo dragon, that are recent discoveries, you know, relatively recent, or the Okapi. I mean, that's a great one, right? Um, these are you know, significant animals that have only recently been discovered. Um, I think it was at the 1900s for the gorilla, and now maybe the 1930s or 40s for the Komodo dragon. But here's these stories coming out of Indonesia about this voracious dragon, this reptile. You know, 10 feet long, that's eating people. If it bites you, you know, it's like you're on fire, you you die. Yeah, of course, you know, this is, these are mariners' tales. These are uh, imaginative natives, you know, that one, that comes up a lot. Um, or things like the Michele and Bimbe or um, uh, some of the other dinosaurs that are described in the Congo. And uh, one of the things, I think Roe Mackle went there, and what he said, and he's a you know, he's an evolutionist and a uh, skeptic, as well as a cryptozoologist. He was always very skeptical. He asked them what it was and what it looked like. And they drew nine times out of ten. They drew a, you know, a, a patasaurus or something similar to that um, in the sand or on paper. That's what they drew for him. And when he showed them pictures, other natives pictures of this creature, this apatosaurus in a book, they immediately identified it as the Macaulay Bembe. So. You know, who's been in the Congo? This is a huge area of swampland, um, which is treacherous to human life for the most part. Who's to say what's not in there? When people turn around and just say, there is no this, or there is no that. So somebody the other day said, there is no British Bigfoot. A, a well-known researcher. 
And some of his other well-known researching friends joined him to say, yes, it's a very worrying trend that um, that people are starting to think there's a British Bigfoot. And I said, why is it worrying? And how is there no British Bigfoot? If that's the evidence you're presenting, that's not very convincing. There is no, that's not an answer. That's just a, that's a statement. I don't think it's true. That's fine. You don't have to. But that doesn't make something untrue. That, that doesn't really present a, an alternative answer to people. So I think what I'm trying to do, and some of the others, like the uh, people like Bigfoot Tony or the British Bigfoot Research Group, other researchers of phenomena like Roland Watson, who's probably the best Loch Ness monster researcher, you should definitely check out his blog, which I think is on Loch Ness Mystery blogspot.com um, and he covers the whole subject very very in depth you can find all the information you want there these people you know they're bravely standing up against a lot of doubt even in their own camp and saying I believe there's something there and this is these are the reasons why not just I believe it because I want there to be plesiosaurs I want there to be Bigfoots or whatever else there is I believe it because the evidence convinces me that there is something to these reports. And that's really all we need to do is, as researchers is honestly look, without prejudice if we can, as much as we can, and say, well, what are they then? What, what is being described, regardless of what I want it to be or not want it to be, what is actually being described? And then go from there. Right. You know, before we get out of here, Andy, I would like to ask you, one question of all the different cryptids we talked about today, which one do you think has the best chance to be proven to exist within the next 10 to 15 years? I think that of the British uh, cryptids that we've talked about, I think that the highest uh, probability would be for one of the, the late monsters like um, Nessie, but I don't think Nessie particularly, I think maybe that type of creature in some other body of water in the UK, I think that surveillance will just reach a point where we're going to get a really good clip, uh, a really good bit of footage at some point of this animal. Personally, myself, with some others, I'm working on trying to map um, exactly where these creatures might visit at certain points. I'm not totally convinced that they have a definitive pattern right now. I think it might be more roaming or transient. But there is a slight glimmer of hope that there is a way of, of predicting, you know, um, preferable sites for research. And that, that's, if you know, I forget the series, that's what I'm going to hope to, to put into action. Um, regardless, though, if we do discover something, I'm sure we'll be discredited <laughs> and swift under the carpet really, really <laughs> sure. quickly. Because as much as it would be a, a great boon to me personally, you know, I think it would lead to utter and complete ridicule which I'm just um, trying to, I'm hopefully preparing for at the moment I, I hope to one day be utterly and completely ridiculed because I've discovered something nobody wants to believe if that makes any sense and sure. um, you know, then those of us like me and you and some others will say well actually yes you know, I believe this is true and others will say well he faked the evidence and we found out really he was some costume maker in the film industry <laughs> or whatever, which I'm not Incidentally, and um, uh, yeah, we'll just see what happens with that. Hopefully, I'll get the chance to, to face that, that opposition. Yeah, well, outside of your blog, which is beastofbritain.blogspot.co.uk, 
where else could people get a hold of you if they have any sightings in the UK or have information that might be valuable to you and your research? The best place would be my, my Facebook page, um, which is, uh, it's actually facebook.com forward slash beasts of. Um, and that's, it's beasts of because obviously we will look at different areas of the world you know, after this comes out. So we do uh, uh, intend to, to take it internationally but at the moment it's just beasts of britain so facebook.com forward slash beasts of or we can also go to twitter as well which is um it's at beasts of britain okay andy mcgrath i really appreciate you coming on and talking with us tonight uh if you have any other information you'd ever want to share with me in the audience you're feel feel free to come back on i'd love to and thank you very much for having me on tony it's been a a real pleasure all right man take care take care bye-bye Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And remember to go to iTunes and leave a rating and review so you can have a shout out on next week's show. Also, if you've had an encounter of any kind, go ahead and shoot me that email. My email address is theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com or go to the website theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the connection section and you can reach me that way as well. I hope everybody has a great week and I'll see you right here next Saturday on The Confessionals.
Oh, I'm crying.